Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come among your people and guide us into all truth and show us the things of Jesus and make them ours indeed. Amen. Oscar Wilde once said there are two great tragedies in life. One is not getting what you want, and the other is getting it. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure I get that first one. If you really want something in life, depending on how good it is and how much you want it, not getting it can be super bad, tragic even. But I'm not sure I get that second part, because like if, if not getting what you want is tragic, then how can the very opposite thing also be tragic? What's he trying to say, that all of life is a tragedy? That's not particularly helpful. The only person with a more paradoxical view of how human beings get what they want is the Apostle Paul. Did you hear what he said just a minute ago in verse 1 of chapter 5? For freedom, Christ has set us free. So do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. First part I get. He says freedom is something that, uh, that we can have, that Christ has given to us. So far, so good. But then if you think about that just a little bit more, you realize that that's a very different view than what we're often told about freedom which is that freedom is something that we do for ourselves. It's something that we exercise for ourselves. I'm going to do what I want with my time and my money. These are my hopes for my future. But Paul says, no, no, no. Uh, freedom is not something that you exercise. It is something that you receive from Jesus. Okay, so far so good. But then if we're so free... How is it that we are in danger of falling back into a yoke of slavery? I thought if I'm free, then I can do whatever I want. I can ride off into the sunset. I can write my own ending to my own special story. What's this about being dragged back into the past? I thought that freedom was about everything that's out in front of me. Paul says... Uh, you're free, but you don't have the first idea of what to do with your freedom. You've become so habituated by life in captivity that you're totally clueless about where you're headed. Do y'all remember that, uh, that character in the movie Shawshank Redemption, Brooks? He was, the, he was like the bird man. He had been in prison his whole life, and finally he gets paroled, and he's totally befuddled by the speed of modern life. He doesn't know how to make friends. He, he doesn't um, know what he can and can't do. Every time he's at the grocery store where he works, he has to ask his boss if he can go to the restroom, and the boss is just says, you know, don't just act, don't, you don't have to ask me. Just go. You're free. The picture that Paul is painting of me and you is uh, just as unflattering as that. That's what we are. We're people who are free in regard to the law. Our parole papers have come down from the board. Um, 
we can go where we want, but we don't know where we're going. Paul says, uh, you may be free from slavery to Pharaoh, but uh, in terms of where you're going, you are wandering around in the wilderness of modern life. So he says, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. It's not a very flattering picture of me and you, is it? That we're like freed slaves. Now, I understand um, some of you are pretty skeptical of what I'm saying. Some of you are saying, uh, you know, it's like that uh, lyric from the Billy Joel song. He says, I got a good job. I got a good office. Got a new life. I got a new wife and the family's fine. I got three beautiful kids. Life is good. Got a real nice house. I've even got one of those things on the back of my Jeep that says life is good. Life is good. I can do what I want. I'm a full grown man. Who are you to tell me that I'm like a freed slave? But are you really free? Let's take, uh, let's take a, just a normal example from everyday life. A situation where you think you are exercising the maximal freedom that our society promises. I'm talking, of course, about the, um, the long row in the quick trip where you can choose from 547 different features, uh, you know, flavored high fructose corn water. You can pick any one of them, and you have an endless array of options. But isn't it also true that there's something about the need to choose that you didn't choose? You didn't choose to be thirsty in the first place, did you? Or as one philosopher said, uh, a man can do what he wants but he can't want what he wants. What I think is meant by that is that under every one of the things that we want, under every one of the things that we choose, there's this other thing down there that we're trying to get by getting this, right? Beneath the illusion of infinite choice, there are plenty of other things that we never get to choose. They're hidden from our sight. Now, I know this is all kind of dense and philosophical, uh, but stick with old Deacon Joe here just for a minute. Let's try to work this out a little bit more as it relates to the moral life. Let's say that there is something that you want, and for the sake of argument, let's say it's a good something. You want to go out on a date with a nice boy, the good-looking boy from biology class. Or maybe you want to own your own business. Both good, fine things. So you knock yourself out trying to make this happen. You work harder than the next guy. You work hard on weekends. You give the boy a nice look and compliment him on his performance on the athletic field. And as long as you don't have the thing, you can labor under the illusion that it's that thing that you want. But then what happens when you get the thing? One of two things happens. Either the thing gives you just enough of a dopamine rush or just enough of a sense of fulfillment 
that you realize that getting this job and having this happiness are very intimately connected. And so in order to have that happiness, to have that joy, you give more things to the job or to the boy. And after a while, you realize that the thing that you're giving more and more of yourself to is taking more and more and giving you less and less in return. Of course, the other thing that can happen is uh, you get the thing, you get the boy, you get the job, and you realize, oh, you know what? Mm, Yeah, he's really not all that. Actually, there's not much of a relationship between what I thought I wanted and what I really want, which in case of the boy would be you, you want someone to make you feel beautiful, you want to feel wanted. In the case of the job, you didn't want the job. You wanted people to think you're smart as a whip and that you bring value to your society and your town. I saw this uh, slippage illustrated once in a really interesting and kind of weird little clip on YouTube. Evidently, the Alabama football coach, Nick Saban, had invited former heavyweight uh, boxing champion Mike Tyson to come you know, exchange leadership cliches with the football boys. And so they're sitting down and they're talking. And uh, Saban says, uh, it's like I always tell our guys, uh, you know, you reach the top of the mountain. And Tyson interrupts him and says, yeah, you reach the top of the mountain and and there's no more mountains. (laughs) And Saban said, No, you reach the top of the mountain and there's nothing but mountains. You got to go find the next one and climb it. Wow. Uh, That's that's really interesting. Uh, As Oscar Wilde might have said, there are two great tragedies in life. Not reaching the top of the mountain or realizing that there are nothing but mountains. Now, there are some philosophies and spiritual teachings that tell us that this slippage between what we think we want and what we actually want, that that's just an illusion. And that to really um, solve this problem of human desire is to, is to realize that there's no, there's no there there. But that's not what the Christian church teaches. The church teaches that God has made us to be desiring creatures. God has, God is the one who made it such that the thing we think we want will never do it for us. Because God has designed us such that our eternal home is always going to be in him. God has made this slippage between getting what we want and truly finding the destiny of our souls. Paul has a way of describing this in Galatians 5. The language he puts on it is that there is a war uh, of desire that is going on inside of every one of us, and it's the war that happens between the life of the Spirit and the life of the flesh. Real quickly, I have to just say, Paul gets a a bad rap by people who don't know the first thing about Paul, who think that when he says flesh, he means the human body, like that Paul's down on the body or something. Nothing could be further from the truth. The, The word he uses here 
it's not flesh like in a human body. It's a, it's a really technical word. Sarx is the Greek word. And by that, he means, uh, he means the, the part of the human soul, the part of human striving that is turned against God. Or even the part of human beings that just sort of is the uncultivated person that knows nothing about God. I think uh, Paul's meaning of flesh is really well illustrated by that, um, by that poem by Mary Oliver that's so famous where she says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You have only to let the soft animal of your body love what it wants to love. People love that on Instagram, you know. That's the flesh. Uh... In common parlance, we would say, you do you, or just be yourself. Whatever you happen to be walking around desiring, whatever flavor of the sugar water you want, that's cool, man, we got it for you right here. Paul says the upshot of the internal battle between the self that we just happen to be and the self that the Spirit is calling forth from the very depths of the life of God, that slippage causes us to lose our freedom such that we can't even do what we want to do. We think we want to do this, but no, then we realize, nope, I actually want to do that. And if it, how, how do I get what I want? In other words, when you go after something, the cute boy, the job, whatever it is, there's always something deeper that you want. And it is actually, now get this, it's actually the Spirit who messes that up for you. You ever thought about that? It's the very Spirit of God that keeps you from these very shallow desires really fulfilling you. Paul says God has put His Spirit inside every one of you. It's, it's your gift that you received at baptism. It's your gift when you trusted Christ. You have the Spirit. You are sealed by the Spirit. And now, nothing else is going to do it for you. You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And now all the other flimsy stuff, it's, it's lost its, its luster to you. I was talking with a young man from the congregation last week. Uh, we're going to read Augustine's Confessions together. And by the way, if anybody else wants to get in on a book club of Augustine's Confessions, I would love to have you along. It's top five reading for every, every member of humanity. I would love to have you. But I was looking up some things related to this, and I ran across, uh, boy, Augustine is the master of exactly this idea about the way that it's the Lord inside of you that's ruining everything else. He says, you know, what I thought I wanted was the luster of flesh and wine and mirth with my friends. But then looking back on it, he prays to God, Lord, you were always there savaging me in your pity, scattering the most acrid upsets on everything illicit that I enjoyed, and you did this to make me look for enjoyment without any upset. And to be able to, uh, to find it in anything 
but you. To those of you who overeat because you're sad, take heart. It's the Spirit of God who makes it stale. To those of you who feel guilty about your drinking, take heart. It's the Spirit who's making you sick of it. To those of you who are bored by your tawdry fantasies, take heart. It's the Spirit who makes you feel that it's so shallow and empty in order to turn your heart back to your soul's true home. And let me also be clear, friends, the Spirit does not just thwart our desires for bad things. The Spirit can also thwart our desires for good things that we have made into ultimate things. You know, sometimes I wonder why we pray for one another in such shallow terms. Sometimes if someone's sick, we just rush right in to pray that they'll get better. Why do we do that? I don't know about you, but I want someone to know me and love me well enough to not just pray for my shallow desires, be they good or, or whatever. I want somebody to get down there with me and say, Joe, you've got a slippage here. I mean, nothing is better than, than health except for the presence of God. It's good. to Being healthy is great. No one's not saying that. But why do we rush in, uh, so-and-so is looking for a job. Well, Lord, we pray that they get the job. Well, maybe God is doing something else in their desire. But to those of you who are frustrated and thwarted, there's nowhere you can't go that the Spirit is not able to work on you. The lowest point of your, your life, the highest tragedy that you've yet experienced can be the beginning of your journey back to your highest joy. But you have to let the Spirit guide you. So how does the Spirit do that? How can you be guided by the Spirit? Well, um, we said a couple of weeks ago, remember, that the Spirit has a job description. Jesus said, I will send my Spirit. He will guide you into all truth. He will take everything that belongs to me and declare it to you. In other words, this Holy Spirit is the one who introduces us to Jesus. When we first come to know Christ, it's only by the Spirit of God that we are able to miraculously see who Jesus truly is. And that gift of the Spirit that we receive when we're justified by faith or, or at our baptism, that Spirit doesn't leave us. The Spirit is always testifying to you, hey, look to Jesus, look to Christ. It's, it's him who is your soul's true home. These other things, they don't satisfy you because they're not him. Anytime you feel that and experience that, anytime you feel the slightest inclination to pray a prayer of prayer, Lord, thank you for this white oak tree. Thank you, Lord. That's the spirit. Anytime you're worried about your children, you say, Lord, I'm so anxious. Please transform my anxiety into trusting you, the giver of my children in the first place. 
that's always the spirit who allows you to see, you know what? It's Christ that I look to ultimately. And when you look to Christ and see him portrayed in your mind's eye graphically, when you apply the difficulties of your life to the goodness and to the wholeness that you have received in Jesus Christ, that is walking with the spirit. But now comes another sticking place. If you've tried all the other things and found them wanting, you've got to answer a question before you can go to Christ for your ultimate joy. And it's a question I dare say I would imagine many of you ask in one way or the other. And that is, is Christ really going to be it Or is Christ going to turn out to be like all the other boys? Charming at first, but ultimately self-centered. What is it about Christ that makes him worthy of being our ultimate desire? Some of you say, yeah, I'll keep doing this uh, God thing. Yes, Jesus, I, I see that you do something, nothing and nobody else does. But you know... Uh, I don't want to be a religious freak. And if I go all in with you, then I'll be strange. And what's more is I'll really be out on a limb. Because what if you don't deliver? So in the meantime, I'll keep working on on this uh, relationship with God over here. But I might as well have a two martini lunch because I know what that will do for me. Isn't that what we say? I might as well work a little bit at the office Because I know when my boss gives me an attaboy, I know that's going to feel good. So how is it that we come to a place where we can totally trust Christ with every one of our desires? You know, we've talked a lot about what we desire, how we get it, how we don't get it, and what it means for us. But let me ask you, what do you think Christ desired? You ever thought about that? I mean, talk about the guy who had everything. We say in the creed that he was light from light eternal, that he dwelled in the eternal fellowship of the Trinity, meaning he had all the love that we, could, that we can't even imagine. He already had it. So why did he do what he did? He must have wanted something. What did he not have in the bosom of the Father? What did he want so much that he was willing to give his life for it? I'll tell you. The only thing that Christ didn't have that he wanted was me and you. He wanted us. He was willing to have his face marred, his visage contorted in pain and brutality because he found me and you to be beautiful beyond all measure. That's right. He was willing to forego all the riches that he had at the right hand of the Father so that we might discover in his life that there is pleasure forevermore. Christ didn't need us, but yet he wanted us. Have you ever wanted to be wanted like that? Well, of course you have, because that's how he made you. 
today when you come to this holy meal. Come and taste the only love that cannot be consumed. Come and drink of him whose desire is to be consumed by you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.